If you will turn with me in your scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, our text for today will be verses 8 through 22. To begin this morning, I will read the text, and you can follow along in your own scriptures or follow on the screens. It's here for you this morning as we look to worship and find the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness', righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this text this morning with hearts longing to hear from you, to be encouraged and strengthened by your grace. So we ask now that the Spirit would work in us, help us to grow together as a church family, and be prepared for what it means to stand firm in grace this morning. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Suffering is difficult. The Christian life is not an easy life. And no one ever said that it would be. 
not even Jesus himself. And living the Christian life, pursuing righteousness, pursuing godliness, is, is especially not easy when we face opposition and persecution and suffering. But Jesus calls us to follow his example. To follow Jesus as a disciple means that we must pursue godliness and righteousness, even if suffering comes. In fact, not when, or not if, but when it comes. We must be prepared and we must be ready mentally and spiritually to suffer as Christians in life. So we must have the proper perspective on suffering when it comes to us as Christians. Peter wants to give that to us today from our text. He wants to show for us exactly what it means to stand firm in God's grace even when suffering comes. This is the theme of our whole study through the book of 1 Peter, stand firm in grace. And in this particular section, he wants to show us this application. How do we stand firm in grace even when suffering comes for being a Christian? What does it look like? What does it look like to stand firm in grace? Now, some of you this morning might be thinking, does this text even really apply to us here today as Americans in the 21st century? If you have any question of whether or not this text is relevant for us today, all we need to do is consider the events of this past week here in the United States. A journalist wrote an online article against the popular reality TV stars Chip and Joanna Gaines. Did you see it? Chip and Joanna openly identify as Christians. I don't know much about them, but they openly identify as Christians and they attend a church in Texas that continues to hold to the biblical view of marriage. The pastor of their church has been clear on the Bible's teaching on gender and homosexuality and the nature of sin and salvation in Jesus alone. And as a result of this position where the Gaineses attend church and the stance of this church and the pastor, as a result of this, they have come under fire and hostility. Even another journalist, and I believe writing for the Washington Post, acknowledged the hostility of this article. He wrote, and just an aside, he's also a homosexual. But he's writing to actually defend against this kind of blatant hostility of believers. And he recognizes this article was meant only to harm them, to cause loss of contracts, loss of livelihood, loss of reputation, whatever it is, as long as they are harmed, this article is a success. This journalist is being called out by even other journalists for poor journalism and for blatant hostility against Christians. It's relevant for us today. How would you respond if you were in Chip and Joanna's shoes this morning? What comfort, what instruction does God have for them today from this text? And what instruction and what comfort does God have for us today? What does it look like for us to stand firm in God's grace even when suffering and hostility comes? Peter's been giving us systematic instructions about how to live out our lives as Christians in the society in a way that displays the grace of God to the world to see. So in chapter 2, we saw that he gave us instructions about how to live in a larger society in general. Namely, that our lives should be consistent with positive good works in Christ. And that we should be rejecting sinful, sinful behavior that is characteristic of the world. 
That's what it looks like for us to stand firm in grace in the general society. Lives of good works and lives that say no to sin. Then he gives us instructions for how to live out in our relationships, in, in the household and in the family. <clears throat> chapter 2 and chapter 3, he talks about how servants should obey their masters, even unjust ones. Why? Because in so doing, they receive and experience the grace of God, and the grace of God is displayed. Then he addresses wives as they are to live in joyful submission to their husbands, even unbelieving ones. Why? Because in this way, they experience the grace of God, and they display the grace of God. And husbands, they should love their wives and live with them in an understanding way as weaker vessels. Why? Because this order and beauty in how they live together brings the grace of God and displays the grace of God. And this is what it looks like for us to stand firm in the grace of God in these relationships and in society as a whole. And now Peter brings us to this point as an entire church family to say to us, now this is what it looks like when, when you as a church family and as individual members in it face suffering and hostility against you as Christians. This is what it looks like to stand firm in grace, even when suffering comes. So Peter makes this profound statement in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Startling. Why? So that you can obtain, or, or you can inherit a blessing. And this statement of verse 9 essentially summarizes this first point that Peter is trying to make for us this morning. Could you guys advance this? This is not working very well. You are called to bless others even when suffering comes. Why? Because you are blessed in Christ. Simply two points this morning. This is the first one. You are called to bless others even when suffering comes. Because you are blessed in Christ. But look at verse 8. In order to obey this command to bless even your enemies, as Christ instructs us, the Christian community must first be an alternate society. It must be a place of support and refuge for all believers. Against the hostility and against the opposition of the unbelieving world around us, this Christian community, this church, must be an alternate place. It must be a place of safety and refuge. The church should not be a place where believers face hostility and attack from within. But isn't that the case too often? Brothers and sisters, Peter says, this ought not so to be. It's a mark against us in the world around us when there's hostility and opposition within. So Peter says, if you, if you or if we are to make any progress in displaying the gospel to the unbelieving world around us, if we're to make any progress in standing firm in the grace of God, even when suffering comes, then there are some things that we need to pursue, that we need to cultivate, that we need to intentionally practice. And he gives us five virtues in verse 8. One, unity of mind. Unity around Christ alone. That's it. Sympathy for one another. Understanding for one another. Brotherly love. And the emphasis here is not 
on affection or what we feel and emotion towards one another, but the emphasis here is on actually resolving to do right by one another, treating one another properly to those that we are related to in Christ, regardless of how we feel. A tender heart, compassion, recognizing the needs and bending towards one another. And finally, a humble mind. The mantra of every believer in the church, in this church, in this local church, should be, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. So I just simply ask us here this morning, church family, how are you doing to cultivate these virtues here at Highlands? Are you individually modeling these things and promoting these characteristics among us? Or are you in some way undermining the very growth that Christ is calling us to. As we approach the table this morning, as a family, it's fitting for us, it's, it's fitting for you as an individual to look at this verse and examine, stop and consider. Are you building these virtues or are you undermining them here in our church family? And let me add this, all of us have work to do. All of us have work to do. We've not arrived. Peter now turns to show how this Christian community living out these values then can respond to the unbelieving and hostile community and world around us. So he says in verse 9, the first part, we are to avoid verbal retaliation and self-vindication. We're to avoid this sort of Verbal spewing back at evil. Do not, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. Instead, bless. Verse 9. Second part. Peter clearly picks up the example in the teaching of Jesus to make his point and to, his apply, and to apply his point to the Asian believers and to us today. Jesus says in Luke 6, But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Again, in Matthew 5, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, love is not simply the the feeling or the emotion that we have towards one another. Love is acting rightly towards someone else, even if they're our enemy. And doing right by them, even if they're our enemy. So Peter's clear focus here is on a specific way of loving them. He says you're not to use your tongue for evil, to respond in evil back. But instead, you're to use your tongue for blessing, for good. We're called to actually pray for our enemies. We're to pray that the blessing of God would come on their lives. How can we do this? Because here's the amazing thing. In God's sovereignty, he knows exactly what kind of blessing to pour out on our enemies. To show his grace and to show his glory. He knows exactly what they need. And so we can freely bless and pray, invoking God's blessing on their lives, even when they hurt and revile us. Now, the obedience to a command of that of 3.9 has an effect 
It's a powerful witness and a clear testimony of evidence to the world around us that, that something supernatural is transforming and changing us. Because that way of thinking is not natural. That way of praying for enemies is not normal. That is countercultural. And Peter is clearly teaching us here how to stand firm in grace even when suffering comes. You're blessed in Christ. Therefore, you're free to bless others. And then Peter goes on, though. He says the reason that we're able to live such a countercultural, counterintuitive, supernatural, above the natural way is because we have a hope. Next slide, guys. You are called to engage the world because we have a hope that the world doesn't have, even when suffering comes. And thanks to our merciful God, there's still much common grace and common good all around us in this world. In verse 13, it makes this very clear. We should not expect at every turn to face suffering and opposition for our lives. We, we shouldn't live in constant fear in the normal sense that we're going to face suffering and opposition every day in every situation for every act of kindness and every act of goodness that we do as believers. However, in verse 14, Peter goes on to clearly indicate that we should expect suffering and opposition to come at some point. See, if we don't expect suffering and opposition to come at some point, we're living in a hole, and we may not be living the Christian life the way we ought. So we must be ready. We must be ready to suffer and understand what that looks like. So Christians will have, or have and will continue to suffer in this life whether it's the opposition and suffering like what the gains is a face, like I alluded to already, or whether it's the kind of suffering that's more direct and violent, like that of my friends and those that they are friends, or the kidnapping and rape and murder of Christian women serving as nurses and human aid workers in Afghanistan, serving Muslims and minority groups that are in need. Whether suffering comes in one of those forms on the scale, the reality is that all Christians who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution at some point and in some way. You will face suffering as a true Christian. So Peter says, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Peter applies again Jesus' words directly to the Asian Christians and to our situation. He says in Matthew 5 again, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So know this. Know this and understand this. And as you know and understand this, you'll be prepared and you'll know how to respond when suffering comes. And he gives us several responses, one negative and two positive. In verses 14 to 15. This is how we ought to respond. Don't fear those who bring suffering. Don't fear those who bring terror or who threaten against you. What, what can they do to you? What can they do to you? Your, your hope is in Christ. Your life is wrapped up in Christ. Are they going to kill you? Is that the worst they can do? Jesus says your life is wrapped up in mine. There's nothing for you to fear. Positive side, 
Don't fear, but rather remain faithful to Christ. Set him, set him apart as holy in your life. Set him as the proper Lord, the one that you properly fear, the one you properly obey in all things. Remain faithful to Christ. And when this opposition comes and, and you remain faithful to Christ and you're not living in paralyzed fear, you're able to do something else. You're ready to respond. You're ready to give an answer or an explanation of this hope that is in you, that is Christ. Peter here is not speaking about the need to have a master's degree in apologetics or theology or to be able to debate successfully every aspect of the Christian faith to silence your opponents or in the philosophy class, or at the table. No, Peter is simply calling you to be ready to clearly and gently and graciously, yet boldly, communicate why you love Jesus. Why He's your only hope. Why your whole life is being transformed by following Him. And even why you're responding the way that you are in times of suffering. So, can you do that? Are you ready, brothers and sisters? Are you ready to tell someone and simply answer to them why you love Jesus? If you're truly living with Jesus as your only hope in this life, if you're truly finding your joy and satisfaction in Christ alone, then you don't need a class for this. You don't need an evangelism course. You don't need a college degree for this. You simply need to speak of your love and gratitude for Christ because of the hope that He gives you every day and the joy that He's brought into your life through the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation you have to God and the freedom you have to live. You simply need to lovingly introduce people to Jesus. This is what it means to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Peter then offers further encouragement in verse 17. And again, his words might startle us at first. He says this, It is better to suffer for doing good. What? Say that again, Peter. It's better for me to suffer? Yeah. It's better for you to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. And what is Peter saying here? The formula or this statement, it is better, that introduces the rest of the sentence is a common way of stating a profound eternal truth and reality. If we could reword it this way. If it should be God's will, then it's better to suffer now as doers of good at the hands of evil men than to suffer on the final day of judgment when these same evildoers receive their eternal judgment and punishment from the just judge of all men. This is what Peter's saying. There's two kinds of categories of suffering. Suffering that's only temporary and light for doing good. And there's an eternal kind of suffering, and it's so much better to suffer for doing good now in the hands of Christ and experience life in the end than to suffer for all eternity for the judgment on evil and your unforgiven and unrepentant sin. So what's Peter's point to us? To suffer now with Christ is life. To lose your life, as Jesus says, is to find it. But to suffer for doing evil, that's the eternal fate of all who reject Christ. And since we have a hope in Christ, and our suffering is only temporary, and it will end in eternal blessing, we can engage the world, and we can rejoice, and we can even face 
suffering knowing that it is temporary and light. So we are called to engage the world now. Why? Even when suffering comes. Why? Because you have hope in Christ. Which brings us to the final verses, verse 18 and 22. And the grace and promises that that we have found in Christ, the one who has already suffered for us at the ultimate cost. Let me just briefly say this about verses 18 to 22. I'm not going to answer, be able to answer all your questions this morning. If you'd like to talk about this text with me afterwards, I would love to. But I'm going to try to give you the best, what I believe to be the best interpretation of these verses, which is a historic interpretation going back to at least the time of Augustine, of how we as Christians understand this text. So here's just a high-level overview. The key to understanding these verses in 18 to 22 is found in two observations, I believe. First, we need to understand that these verses are given to us by Peter to justify or to explain what he has just said in verse 17. Notice that in verse 18. He says, For Christ. So he's building on the argument. He's giving us an explanation for what he's just said. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. For Christ also suffered. So Peter begins by making this profound point. Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Christ's suffering was for a clear purpose, to bring us to God. So if Jesus' suffering was intended to bring us back into a right relationship to God, then know that Jesus' suffering and his death was not the end of the story. There's more to come. Namely, the resurrection and his ascension, his vindication. My second observation is this, that Peter's main point of this section is found by reading verses 18 and verse 22 together. And what comes in the middle is illustration. Since Jesus' death was such for, for such a clear purpose that he must succeed. And verse 22 shows us the success of Jesus' mission. He was exalted, and he is vindicated, and he is sitting at power in heaven. Jesus' life and unjust unjust death were gloriously vindicated through his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And nothing is able to keep Jesus from accomplishing his purpose of saving his people and bringing us to God. So how does Peter want to encourage us with these verses? He wants us to see that if we suffer for following Jesus, then our sure hope is that we will be vindicated and exalted with Jesus, since he was vindicated and exalted as well. Jesus is our example Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our vindication. Jesus is our salvation, even in the face of suffering. What comes between these verses, 19 to 21, are illustrations or analogies that Peter gives us to try to help make this point clear for us. But because we're removed, it takes some work on our parts to understand what Peter's saying. So first, Peter introduces us to Noah. You know Noah. God used Noah, the one who walked with God, a righteous man, a man of faith. God used him as a preacher and a herald of righteousness, Peter tells us in Second Peter. Before God brought the floodwaters and judgment of the earth, this was Noah's role. 
And through Noah, I believe this is the interpretation of the text, through Noah, the Spirit of Christ preached to all these who are unrepentant in Noah's day. And God delivered Noah and his family from the opposition of this generation. And He delivered Noah through the judgment in the ark. So Peter intends further to encourage Christians to persevere in righteousness. To continue to engage those around you with the gospel, like Noah did, even in the face of suffering, calling people to repent of their sin, even if opposition comes, knowing this, knowing that your Savior will deliver you. And this is what it looks like to stand firm in grace, even when suffering comes. And then, after introducing Noah, Peter introduces baptism, and rather abruptly in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, wait a second, corresponds to what? Well, it corresponds to Noah and his family going through the floodwaters in the ark. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. See, Peter wants his readers and us to connect the the historic reality of what happened to Noah and his family to the spiritual and the symbolic reality of what baptism represents for us. So just as Noah was saved by God in the ark, so also all those who are found in Christ, those who have been spiritually baptized into Jesus Christ, they will be saved by God from the wrath that is to come. Therefore, baptism represents how we have been cleansed from our sin and have been brought to new life in Christ by being spiritually united with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection. These aspects show his suffering and his victory, as the text is talking about. Again, Peter intends these words to be an encouragement to us, to remind us, to remind you, that you will experience the same saving grace that Noah experienced. Because it's the same saving God that Noah knows. He will not fail in his purposes. He will deliver his people. So, brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to stand firm in grace, even when suffering comes. You will bless others when suffering comes. Why? Because you've been blessed in Christ. You will continue to engage the world even when they push back against you. Why? Because you have a hope that they do not have. You have hope in Christ alone, even when suffering comes. And here's the most profound statement of the text. Peter says, it's better. It is better for you. It's better that you suffer for doing good now. To follow Christ. To let Him have your life and to obey Him in every way. It's better that you follow Christ and suffer for that now than to reject Christ and to suffer for eternity. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's better? Do you believe the joy that you have in Christ, the hope that you have in Christ, the the freedom from sin that you have in Christ? Even if temporal suffering comes, do you believe that's better? Peter wants to convince you it's better. Why? Because you're blessed in Christ and you have hope in Christ. It's better. Because in the end... Your hope 
and your vindication and your salvation are found only. It's found only when you stand firm in grace. It's found only when you persevere till the end. It's found only when you find Christ to be enough, to be your hope, to be your joy, and to be your vindication. Let's pray.